Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, church. Hello, Battersea. Hello, Balham. Those online or listening somewhere in the future later, it is an absolute pleasure to be with you this morning. We are landing our month-long series in Exodus. We've been exploring the the story of the great exit. The second book of the Bible over the last few weeks, we've heard from Mike, we've heard from Karen, we heard from Phil last week, and I have... No small task, including in kind today. If you haven't been listening along, I strongly urge you to go back and listen. I'm going to be nicking half their ideas and assuming that you know what I'm talking about. So hopefully, at least in retrospect, if you listen back, some of the things will make sense. I could genuinely be talking to you for hours on this morning's sermon. I love all of it, and so I won't. Don't panic. Um, But lots of things ended up on the cutting room floor. And um, I just would also recommend checking out the Bible Project. They've got a couple of videos on the Exodus, which are brilliant, and say in 12 minutes what I would struggle to say in three hours. So please do, if you haven't already had a chance to, check those videos out, because they're great. But for now, let's dive in. So we are in the Exodus. As I hinted earlier, that literally means exit or to leave. The people have been set free from Egypt. Moses went in, cried, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. Pharaoh suffered the consequences. The gods of Egypt were found to be false and impotent, and the Israelites left. They came up out of Egypt as God heard the cry of his people and set his people free. And he led them not straight to Canaan, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, the land that he was providing for his people to give them a place of rest. First, he led them to Mount Sinai, or as it's sometimes known as Horeb, Now, for the eagle-eyed amongst us, you might notice that Horab was the place where Moses first encountered God in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. In other words, God has brought all of his people, not just Moses, to the place of encounter, a place to meet with God. I just imagine that for a second. After all you've been through as a people, the horror of the plagues, the dramatic parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the armies of Pharaoh, here you are, where it all began, on a holy ground where God speaks. What the Lord has done through Moses, is he about to do it with everyone? And will you get to be included? 
So here we are, at the side of a mountain in the middle of a desert. We're no longer in Egypt, but we're not yet in the promised land. We're in the in-between, but we are still in the presence of God. So let's read. We're in Exodus, second book of the Bible, fairly close to the beginning if you've got a physical one, otherwise just scroll through the list um, on new version. And we're in Exodus 19, and we're reading 1 to 11. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from somewhere, beginning with that, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Today, I want to focus in on verse 6 here. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. Today, we're looking at the idea of formation and asking what is it that we are being formed into. And to do that, we're going to dig into three things. The concept of the kingdom, the role of the priest, and the purpose of the mountain moments. So first, kingdom. Kingdom is a concept repeated throughout the God story. The king is the person in charge, the one with absolute authority, the one who rules and reigns. The kingdom is the territory where what the king wants to happen, happens. We each are little kings and queens. Over our bodies, our minds, our environment, to a limited extent, we get to rule and reign. If I want to take a drink, my body acts to make it happen. I guess that's also why we get so shocked or frustrated when we get poorly and our bodies don't behave the way we want them to, or why we found COVID so alien and restricting because somebody else took control over our environment 
we didn't get to be in charge. We didn't get to do or make happen what we wanted. God's kingdom is where what God wants to happen, happens. So what does God want? Well, to answer that question, we need to take a little step back. Zoom out of the close-up story we're here in Exodus and see the idea of the fullness of kingdom that is found at the beginning and the end of our story. I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. How you start a story and how you end a story affects the story that you're telling. One of the things that we've been trying to communicate over the last few weeks is the importance of knowing the God story. The big story of what God is up to, told across the pages of the Bible, in the little stories and the big narratives we read throughout Scripture, they help us understand and navigate the now that we find ourselves in today. I mean, just take the Pete Gregg prayer that we just prayed over a specific issue in a specific time in a specific space, and yet all of it was based on Scripture reminding us of who God is, what Jesus has done, and how we can rely on him. Those big narratives or these little stories, they matter. But what the beginning is and what the end is matters too. Our story starts in a garden. In Genesis, we read how God creates the whole cosmos, brings order out of chaos, light out of darkness, things out of absence. In the beginning, we see in the creation story that he creates, he blesses, he tells creation to be lavish, abundant, and he stewards the flourishing of all that he has made. Our story ends in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. God's kingdom is now a city, the new city of peace on a mountain where God and his people live forever, where there is healing and wholeness, order, no chaos, life, no death, joy, no suffering. The God story is that of a kingdom that grows from a garden to a city. The beginning and the end of the story show us the hallmarks of what God wants to happen. They give us the picture of his kingdom. So as God says here in Exodus 19, the whole world is his. But he invites Israel to become a kingdom of priests. Why? Well, God's kingdom is at hand. But we only need to look around to see that we are some way off the dynamic, flourishing vision of of Revelation. Every one of us here knows the day-to-day grind of life. This week, we are witnessing the horrors of war. Some of us will be burdened by the anxiety or insecurity of our future, whereas others are carrying the sheer exhaustion of what we've just been through. What God wants to happen isn't happening everywhere. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, 
we read that God created humanity to be formed in his image, to bear his likeness. We've heard his name quite a few times already this morning, but I do love the way Patty Butman explains what it means to bear God's image. And he uses the analogy of the queen. Now, I've never met the queen, and I don't know if anyone else in this room has, in which case, very nice to meet you, but I'm pretty confident that if she walked through the door right now and waved hello at everybody, I would recognize her. I'd know who she is. So how can I be so confident that I would instantly know somebody that I've never met before? Well, because I've seen countless objects that bear her image. Coins, notes, stamps, tea towels, even her image on the TV. Image-bearing objects mean that when you encounter the queen, you recognize her for who she is because you've seen her before. None of these objects actually are the queen, but they bear her image, and so she is recognized. Human beings are formed and bear the image of God. And we take this even further. It's not just that we look like God, but we take on his character, his action. We resemble the fullness of who God is. So human beings, male and female, formed in God's image, made in his likeness, to be like him and do what he does. But in the garden, humanity was given a choice. Be formed by him, be like him, participate in his kingdom, bring about what God wants to happen for creation, or go it alone. Choose for yourself. Be your own king. In the garden, humanity chose wrong. And here, in the mountain of God, in the desert, the Israelites are being offered that choice again. Be my priests, invites God. To be a priest is to be human. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of priests. Maybe you think of scandals. Maybe you think of robes. Maybe you think of Fleabag. Um, I've just got back from Rome, which is literally a pace full of priests, shops full of robes, scandal fleeing, and potentially maybe a couple of them might be hot. But the picture of the priest painted in the Bible is quite different. The first priest that we meet in the Bible is Melchizedek. We read about him in Genesis 14. Please, please, please go and read that story and then spend some time in Hebrews because it's brilliant and I really wish I could go on a proper tangent about him, but I can't. So for today, I just want to point out that as a priest, Melchizedek does three things. He represents God. The title Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is formed in God's likeness. He bears God's name. He imitates God. He shows Abram in that meeting in Genesis 14 what God is like. He blesses Abram and he serves him. And he mediates. He is the go-between. He teaches Abram the truth of who God is and how Abram should respond to him. 
This is the pattern of priesthood, to represent, imitate, and to mediate. To be a priest is to be fully human, to be formed in the likeness of God, and to partner with him as he brings about his kingdom in the world. This is God's invitation to the people of Israel. And despite initial signs of promise, they lasted approximately 38 verses. By Exodus 20, 19, the people of Israel opt out. They say to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us, because we'll die. They traded the invitation to fulfill their created purpose as image bearers, choosing instead to be idol makers. Israel failed to be the example of humanity for creation and to participate in God's kingdom. They again chose wrong. But the end of our story, in the city of peace, we see multitudes of people who have chosen differently. They are with their God. They're enjoying the presence of the sun. They're basking in the glory of God. What's changed? Jesus. Jesus makes the difference. Jesus is the high priest. He is the image of God. When we encounter Jesus, we are encountering God. He's God's representative. He bears his name, the name above all names. All the images, all the metaphors of priesthood, from Moses, from Melchizedek to Moses, from David to the prophets, they are all ultimately shadows of Jesus. Jesus shows us, as he came to earth, how to be fully human. He heals, blesses, cares for, provides, and honors all of God's creation. And he invites us, as we follow him, to be transformed, to be like him, and to do the things that he does too. And Jesus is the ultimate go-between. He prays to God, and even now he mediates on our behalf and intercedes for us when we can't speak for ourselves. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, that because of his obedience to God, his agreement to the invitation to do what God wants, to be obedient, even as far as being, being put to death on a cross, the beautiful reality of a life lived in partnership with God is fully available to us all, here, now. That's the invitation of God's kingdom. The invitation he offered to Adam and Eve, the invitation God offered to the Israelites in the, de in the desert, and the invitation that he offers through Jesus to us all. Because by the time of Jesus, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we see that the church is given the identity offered to the Israelites. We are 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's precious possession. You see, there's one more mountain that I want us to visit this morning. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed to them. And we read in Matthew 28 that when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I love that description. The, the life, the works of God through Jesus, his death, and then his resurrection caused some of them to fall to their knees. They lifted their arms and their heart and they worshipped the image of God in front of them. But not all of them. Even with all they had experienced, some of them had doubts. I wonder what they doubted. Did they doubt what had happened and its significance? Even with Jesus stood before them, was it enough to undo all that they had believed, learnt, and lived through up until now? Did they still not fully believe that Jesus could be the Messiah, the promised saviour, the one who would bring about the fullness of God's kingdom here on earth? Was it all just too incredible? Or did they believe Jesus but doubt themselves? They who knew that their ancestors had lasted 38 verses the last time they received uh, encountered God on a mountainside. They who'd fallen asleep at Jesus' darkest hour. Who'd fled Jesus' side at his arrest. Or who had denied even knowing him when it mattered. Maybe they doubted their ability to be who God had made them to be. Yet to both the worshipper and the doubter, Jesus spoke. To them all, he commissioned them. So Matthew 28, 19 and 20, paraphrased reads like this. As you go and live your lives, help everyone you encounter to be imitators of Jesus. Immerse them into a community built upon the characteristics of and the relationship between God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Enable them to put into practice Jesus' instructions for life, to love God with all you do, say, think, feel, and will, and to love all others as you are loved. In both Exodus and in Matthew, we see that the mountain is a place of commissioning, to be reminded of why we are here and what we are to do. It is the place of the in-between, to prepare us for the journey ahead, the journey to the city. But it's worth remembering that Exodus 13, 17 to 18, gives us a little clue as to how sometimes God behaves. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them the long way round, by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt, prepared for battle. From the garden to the city, God tends to go the long way round. And without the mountain, the moment of encounter, we can lose focus. We can lose sight of where it is that we're going. It's our vantage point. It changes our perspective and strengthens us for what's to come. I used to be a youth worker, so I make no apologies about what I'm about to do. If you are able, I'd like you to stand to your feet. And I have not done the health and safety assessment for this, so please be supportive to other people around you. If you are able, helping each other, I'd like you to stand on your chairs. If anyone wants to say, oh, captain, my captain, you are very welcome. Oh, Battersea, do join in. Okay. You have probably changed perspective by about a foot and a half, right? But does it look a bit different up there? <laughs> You're doing well. You're doing great. Well done. Sometimes even just a simple shift changes the way you view things. Sometimes coming up a mountain is all it needs to just remind you of where you've been and where you're going. Come back down and take a seat. Every Sunday, every gathering of Christians is a mountain moment. It's when we get to remind each other whether in our worship or in our doubts, that as we go and live our lives, we are to help everyone to become imitators of Jesus. We get to immerse a community, people into a community built on the characteristics of and the relationship between God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are here to enable others to put into practice Jesus' instructions for life, to love God with all they think, say, do, feel, and will, and to love others as we are loved. Tomorrow, every day this week, we get to be priests. We get to share with others the truths about the nature, the character, and the presence of God we get to imitate Jesus. We get to be like him, to do what he does. And we get to intercede. We get to cry out to God to have mercy, to grant us peace. We carry our burdens and the burdens of others before him. And we get to partner with him for the flourishing of creation. That's the mountain. It's an invitation to once again say yes to God, to be a part of his kingdom. So as we go from this place, why not consider 
Who are you going to be like Jesus for this week? How will you bless and care and honor others this week? Who are you going to pray for? Who are you going to intercede for? Who do you get to share the truths of God, his nature, his presence, and his power? This is our commission. Will you go? But before we go, there is also a moment at the mountain that isn't just for commission, it's for dedication. It's a moment of choice where we submit our reign to his, to dedicate ourselves to God, or as Exodus 19.10 puts it, to consecrate ourselves, to choose whose are we. Consecrate yourself to the Lord today so that he can work wonders through you tomorrow. There's a saying that if you want to take the people out of Egypt, you have to take Egypt out of the people. Another way of saying it, Dallas Willard for the win, we have been formed in a world that rejects God. Our habits of thinking, feeling, and willing are wrongly shaped. God brings his people to his mountain to reset them, to dedicate themselves to him, to be reformed. When I was trying to quit smoking, I was given lots of helpful advice from other Christians. And uh, lots of people tried to tell me that my body was a temple, and that's why I should quit smoking. And I looked at them drinking copious amounts of coffee, beer, eating donuts, forgetting the invention of a vegetable. And I thought, "Mm, I think there might be something a little bit hypocritical maybe in this moment. But there was one thing that got me. It was when I noticed that before I'd pray, I'd have a cigarette. Before I went anywhere, I'd have a cigarette. When I arrived somewhere, I'd have a cigarette. I would consider getting a train that meant that I had to change platforms so that instead of being four hours on a train with no cigarette, I'd be two hours on a train, cigarette break, and then go again. I noticed that my life was being formed by something other than God. So in Joshua 5, verse 6, it says, Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. That's the moment of dedication. That's the moment of consecration. Robert M. Muller, in The Invitation to a Journey, says, To be formed is to go totally, radically against the ingrained objectificational perspective in our culture. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Spiritual formation is the great reversal from being the subject who controls all other things to being a person who is shaped by the presence, purpose, and power of God in all things. That's consecration. To say, God, form me today so that you can work through me tomorrow. There's no shame in this house. We have all fallen short. We've messed up, 
We've said no. We've made the bad call. But God has led you here now. And he's inviting you again to say yes, to reset, to prepare to go again. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve. As for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. As we come into land, I'd like to invite the bands up in Battersea and here in Balham. And to say finally that the mountain is a moment of encounter. Because of Jesus' return to the Father, we are gifted with the Holy Spirit. We do not go the long way round alone. He's always with us in the in-between. In this moment, at this mountain, you are invited to once again fix your eyes on Jesus, the image of God and the saviour of the world. You are invited in this moment of encounter to bring your doubts, your questions, your insecurities, your confessions, your worship, and to lay them at his feet. You're invited in the encounter with God to let him form you in his image. It's what you were made for. So today, as we come to worship, I'm asking, I'm wondering, what is the mountain moment you are here for? Are you here to say yes to the commission, that you will go again? You will be an imitator of Jesus. You will represent him, and you will be the go-between, helping others see his kingdom come. Is this a moment of dedication to reset, to say, I will no longer be formed by the world around me, but I will let you form me in your character, Lord? Is this a moment of encounter, of simply opening your hands and your heart up to the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you in this moment? Let's pray. God, I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see the flourishing of creation. I want to see a place of healing and wholeness, of joy and no suffering, of life and no death. And Lord, right in this moment, we are grieved because we don't see that everywhere. In fact, so often we see its opposite. So we stand with you in this moment, Lord, and say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let what you want to happen happen in our lives and in the lives and the world around us. Father, thank you that you sent your son to show us who you are and to show us who we are in you. Thank you that your son did what we could not do. That because of his obedience, we are granted grace. Despite our failings, we get to partner. We get to be involved. We are citizens of a kingdom of peace. And Lord, I pray today 
that if anyone in this space has not yet said yes to Jesus and what he did, what he did for us, anyone in this space who has not yet given their life over to Jesus to be like him, to be formed by him, to do what he did, Lord, would your spirit be at work, convicting and showing and granting new life. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to come and fall in this place. Help us encounter you. Help us be formed by you. Help us go out into the world as your representatives, as your priests. May we see your kingdom come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.